Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. The two main characters of Ursula K. Le Guin's second Earthsea novel, The Tombs of Atuan, are Arya, or, or Tenar, who runs through the entirety of the work, and Ged, the main character of the previous novel, A Wizard of Earthsea. He's now a wizard of Earthsea, and he appears about a little bit before midway through the novel. And at first, their relationship is one that's antagonistic. Much more on Arha's side than it is on Ged's side, who's trying to get in there, find the missing half of the ring of Aerith Ekba that, that he's looking for, and then get out of there. Whereas Arya is living there. She is the girl who began as Tenar, becomes the devoured one. She is the high priestess of the nameless ones, the powers of the earth below the tombs that dominate the entire area and and at one point in time were very important for the Kargish lands. Now there's a passage that happens before she encounters Ged where this is partly her coming of age, coming into power, and she has to decide what to do, the, the determination of how to kill, how to sacrifice, how to bring about the death of these prisoners that have been sent to her as oblations you could say, for the nameless ones who she serves. And there's a lot of discussion back and forth between her and Castle about exactly what kind of death is, is appropriate. And they're essentially left to die of starvation and thirst. So she's already wrapped her head around this notion of being in charge of the undertomb and being in charge of the life and death of people. As a matter of fact, after that incident, after she gets over her negative affects about that that are coming out in dreams, she starts planning what she might do to future sacrifices. And then something happens. She runs into somebody, Ged, a wizard, one of those people from the inner lands, one of those accursed sorcerers, and she sees him prowling around in the vast chamber of the undertomb. She actually yells, go, go, be gone to, to him. And why does she do that? Well, because of the light that is profaning the sacred space of the undertomb. Here we go. She saw what she had never seen, not though she lived a hundred lives, the great vaulted cavern below the tombstones, not hollowed by man's hand, but by the powers of the earth. And it's a beautiful sight, which we'll talk about elsewhere. But she sees this as a sacrilege that is being committed. Sacrilege, the word came slowly into Arha's mind. This is a man and no man's foot must ever touch the soil of the tombs, the holy place. Yet he had come down. So this is 
angering her, and it's also angering the great powers of the earth, the nameless ones of Atuan. What she ends up doing is going down there and she traps him. He knows that he's being pursued. The light goes out, right? His, his wizard staff. And she, in effect, is stalking him, right? He was not in the tunnel she was sure of it, so close in that cramped place. She would have heard his breath, felt the warmth and pulse of his life itself. Where had he gone? She went slowly forward now, unsure. Her ears told her no more than her eyes, but as she stood with one hand on either side of the rock, she felt a faint, obscure vibration in the rock, and on the chill, stale air was the trace of a scent that did not belong there, the smell of the wild sage that grew on the desert hills. Slow and quiet, she moved down the corridor, following her nose. After perhaps a hundred paces, she heard him. He was almost as silent as she, but he was not so sure-footed in the dark. She heard a light, slight scuffle as if he'd stumbled on the uneven floor and recovered himself at once and then there's this you know moving around a little bit and then finally a rounded bar of metal she waited until this happens a rounded bar of metal came under her fingertips she stopped felt up the strip of iron until almost as high as she could reach she touched a projecting handle of rough iron this suddenly with all her strength she dragged downward there was a fearful grinding and a clash blue sparks leapt out in a falling shower echoes died away she put out her hands and felt only a few inches before her face the pocked surface of an iron door what has happened now she has trapped him in the labyrinth this vast maze of corridors and rooms underneath the tombs of Atuan, where the treasures are, as well as some other very interesting things as well. And so long as that door is shut, he cannot get out. He's now trapped. And so she goes to tell Castle, there's a question, well, what should we do with him? Obviously, he has to die, but how will he die? And how long will it take before he dies? She expresses Arha, that she wants to keep him alive, at least for a while, to make him suffer, to taunt him. And this is a way in which Arha, who doesn't really have power over her own life, now is able to have power over another person's life. And so she spies on him through the many different peepholes that are available at places that she knows and also Castle knows, and the other high priestess does as well, because they're the ones who taught it to her. And she talks to him. At first, her talking to him is essentially taunting him. And then it's giving him directions, directions that she doesn't think he'll really be able to use that well. And she considers perhaps she should give him water. Why? Because that will keep him alive longer. It'll permit her to keep exerting this power over him, the power of essentially being a slave. Right? So later on, she and Manan go into the hall, down into the undertomb. They open the iron door of the labyrinth, right? And this is when the light has gone out and perhaps he might just be waiting to attack them or he might have died or something in between. She says they lit the lanterns at the iron door of the labyrinth. Arha led the way to the painted room and from it started on the way to the great treasury. The thief had not got very far. She and Manan had not walked 500 paces on their torturous course when they came upon him crumpled up in the narrow corridor like a heap of rags thrown down. He had dropped his staff before he fell. It lay some distance from him. His mouth was bloody, his eyes half shut. 
Manan says, well, he's still alive. Should I strangle him? And she says, no, I want him alive. Pick him up and bring him after me. And Manan says, well, why? What's going on here? And here's where the line comes in. To be a slave of the tombs. Be still with your talk and do as I say. A little bit later, Manan is going to say to her, I don't understand. I don't question, but what good is he as a slave to the nameless ones? He is a man, little one. And she says, you're a fool, Manan. I am the one who gets to decide what to do with him. He's going to be a slave to the tombs. What does that mean? Is he a slave to the nameless ones? No, he's really more a slave to Arha at this point in time. She holds his life in her hands, quite literally. She can extend it, she can end it. And what does she do? She brings him food and water. As a matter of fact, she starts to starve herself fasting so that she can bring him the food that she's supposed to be eating. And something is developing between them. At first, he's entirely in her power, entirely her subject, entirely her slave to do with whatever she wants to. We we very often forget that one key part of slavery is not just that you have to do what somebody else says, but that somebody else holds power of life and death over you. And that is what she is enjoying at this point in time. She converses with him. At first, the conversations are rather antagonistic. She tells him that, you know, once they exchange names, she says, you came to worship the nameless ones. I came to rob him. She stared at his grave face, braggart. And she says, what are you, a god, a king? So she's mocking him. And he returns courtesy to her. He says, my lady, I do not mean offense. I'm a stranger and a trespasser. I do not know your ways, nor the courtesies do the priestess of the tombs. I am at your mercy, and I ask your pardon if I offend you. And that's when she gives him the jug of water and says, drink if you like. And she begins to ask him questions, questions about his scars, whether he's a dragon lord, questions about what he's seeking, questions about what he's seen outside of that domain. And in the end, there's something that's going to be provoked by this. Castle, the high priestess of the God King, is looking in through one of these peepholes while she's carrying on this conversation. And she ends up having to do something in order to to save him, save him at least for the moment. But before that, she demands of him that he show her some magic, right? She says, so long as you have some art to show me, you'll stay alive. If you have none, if it's all foolery and lies, then why then I'll have done with you. Do you understand? And he says, "Uh, listen, I can do some magic, but I'm holding back the powers of the earth right now. And I don't have my staff and any sort of illusion that I would do, you would see through right away. So why should I do that? My purpose and desire is to stay alive. And she said, oh, you'll stay alive a while. Can't you see that? You are stupid. All right, show me these illusions. I know them to be false and won't be afraid of them. I wouldn't be afraid if they were real, as a matter of fact, but you go ahead. Your precious skin is safe for tonight, at least. And he does show her a few things, but then Castle is listening in and she says, your magic is mere folly for the eyes of children. It is trickery and lies. I've seen enough. You will be fed to the nameless ones. I will not come again. 
And she has Manan take him to another place. He's taken to the great treasure room. Now, this is very interesting because this hides him from Castle. They actually dig a fake grave for him. But it's also where he gets to find what he's looking for. She says, this is the place you sought. This is the great treasure of the tombs. You have come to it. You cannot ever leave it. You said you wanted to stay alive. This is the only place I know where you can stay alive. Castle will kill you or make me kill you, Sparrowhawk. But here she cannot reach. And she gives him a little bit of consolation. You could have never left the tombs in any case, don't you see? This is no different. At least you've come to the end of your journey. What you sought is here. And she has the chain removed from him. And now he gets to go through the treasures that are under there. But he's in the depth of the labyrinth where he has no hope for escape on his own. Is he still a slave? Yes and no. And as we're going to see now, as the novel proceeds, there's something new that's going to develop between them. It's no longer this despotic mistress to slave relation that she imposed on him at the start. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.